Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in a series called Jesus Before Christmas, Jesus BC, and what we're doing is we're taking a look at some Old Testament stories that highlight Jesus well before Christmas. Part of the reason we're doing that is because we want to embrace the idea that Jesus is God. And Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 doesn't mean that that's when Jesus began to exist. In fact, Jesus existed far beyond that. The lighting of the Advent candle uh, is part of our recognition of this. It's The word Advent means coming from the Latin, and it's this idea that we are waiting, we are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So on Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas, you'll notice that we'll begin the service by the lighting of the candle, and this morning we lit the second candle, next week we'll light the third candle, and so on until we get to Christmas Sunday. And these represent the weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas And as the Jewish people waited for a Messiah, so we do wait for Christmas. And although they waited for a Messiah, Jesus long existed before Christmas morning. And so part of the reason we're doing this is to appreciate the beauty of what the Old Testament points to and to understand what we're celebrating on Christmas Every place we see in the Old Testament where God manifests himself in one way or another is pointing us to who Jesus is. And so last week we looked at Abram and the covenant. This week we'll look at Isaiah and the crisis. And so this morning as we get started, we'll read from Isaiah chapter 6. I'd encourage you to look in your Bibles today, Isaiah chapter 6, as we read through it. What I'll do is I'll read these eight verses and then we'll unpack them together. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. As we begin Isaiah chapter 6 in the opening verses, we'll notice that the narrative begins with an announcement about the king. Look at verse 1 again. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was a, the king of Judah. He came to be on the throne at the age of 16, and he reigned for some 52 years. He had a pretty long and prosperous reign as the king. 
So when Isaiah declares in this narrative that in the year that King Uzziah died, it wasn't just that he died, it, it was, uh, it was a, uh, a declaration of what was happening in that time. King Uzziah, like I said, was a prosperous king. He was militarily very strong. He was able to defeat all the enemies around him. Second Chronicles says this about him, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. This is the kind of king Uzziah was. He led in many victory battles, as I said, military battles, and he had a long and prosperous reign during that time. And what ended up happening is this. He was very prosperous. Uh, the strength of the military grew. The nation became wealthy. And as can happen in a society, as the nation became wealthy, it reflected in the people in, of that nation that they became very smug. They became a little proud, a little full of themselves, as you might say. They were absorbed in their own wealth, in their own strength. And because they were wealthy, they got absorbed in some materialistic things and seeking pleasure above all else. They started looking out for themselves rather than the priorities God had established for them as a nation. So because of this, they were prosperous uh, they were militarily very strong, they were wealthy, they became smug about it, uh, they became a little proud, they started looking out for themselves. Because of all of these events, the culture began to decline. The values they once had had become deteriorate, deteriorated. They became less co cohesive as a nation, they became less strong and then Uzziah's life tragically ended. He sinned against God, and what ended up happening was he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now, on the surface, that seems like a pretty benign act on his part. He entered the temple. He was there to burn incense on the altar of incense, and yet he did something that was reserved for only the priests, it was for the priest to do this task. And so in response to this error in judgment, uh, in response to Uzziah maybe being a little bit too proud himself, God struck down Uzziah with leprosy, and he was isolated as a leper until his death. So it was a moment of great cultural and national chaos. Israel had great reason to be discouraged and disillusioned at the death of Uzziah. They had seen themselves prosper. They had seen themselves grow. They had seen themselves get strong. Yet in the course of time, things begin to deteriorate. And when Uzziah died, it was almost a symbolic moment in the timeline of their history that they were not as strong as possibly they thought. They were not as prosperous as they once were. And in in that moment, Isaiah, perhaps, and like many of us would ask, they asked the question, where did God go in all of this? Where was the Lord in all of this? We've had moments as a nation perhaps similar to this. Many of us remember 9-11, and many of us remember uh, the shock it was to have our country be under attack. It kind of shook our foundations just a little bit, didn't it? To know that as prosperous as we were, as strong as we thought we were, that there was this moment, this day that will forever uh, remain in our minds, this day of sorrow, this day of attack, this day where 
we were not as strong as we thought we were. Culturally, we've seen the deterioration, perhaps, of certain values that we would hold highly. The family structure, perhaps, isn't what it used to be anymore. And we, perhaps, are in this moment, this crisis moment, where we would ask similar questions. Where is God in all of this? And so as we unpack the narrative, we see exactly where the Lord is. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, where all of this happened... I saw the Lord, Isaiah says, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Where was the Lord in all of this? According to verse 1. He was sitting upon a throne. God was still enthroned in heaven and was still in charge of all creation. By way of introduction, if you're following in our notes, even when life doesn't make sense, God is still sitting on his throne. Now, this is a great bumper sticker, isn't it? And if you saw this when you're driving around traffic and you saw this on the back of some vehicle, perhaps you would say, yeah, that makes sense. That's good. I like that. It's a little bit harder to embrace when yours is the life that doesn't make sense. Yours is the moment that is filled with chaos. Yours is the moment. And yet it's important to remind ourselves of truths when our emotions are lying to us. You think about thrones and you think about who thrones are for. Thrones are for sovereign kings. They're for judges that sit on thrones. Those with proper authority and sovereignty sit on on thrones. And so here in this moment of cultural chaos where things don't seem to make sense when the leader of a nation who was prosperous for most of his life, in that moment when he died, there was a reminder to Isaiah, God is still sitting on his throne. Now, for those who perhaps deny the very existence of God or question whether or not there is a God, maybe they identify our atheist or not, but in their core belief, there is this doubt, there is this questioning or whether or not there is a God, it allows for them to have a place in their life and a, uh, a way to live life where there is no throne. There is no seat of authority or power. The core belief of humanism, in fact, here's the convenience of not having a throne, then there is no one in authority but you. And yet the Bible makes it clear that there is a throne, and no man sits on that throne. It is the Lord alone. And so Isaiah might have been discouraged. He might have been defeated, perhaps even depressed. There was a great leader who was no longer on the throne. The politics were in question. The economy was on the brink of ruins. The future was definitely uncertain. Nothing was for sure anymore. How many of you think that sounds like 2022 instead of Isaiah 6? And yet, despite all those realities, it was important for God to remind him he was still on the throne. We read on verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So here we are surrounding the throne of God, and there's these angels known as seraphim. They're also mentioned uh, in Revelation under a different name. They use four of their wings to express their humility and two of their wings to express their, uh, express their willingness to serve God. We read on in verse 3, and 
one called to another and said, let's read this next part of this verse together, ready, begin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, the way they denoted um, emphasis or importance is they repeated things. They didn't have, um, they didn't have control B to put, uh, to put the font in bold. They couldn't underline something. And so to create emphasis, to create importance, they would simply repeat items. Um, in the Old Testament, there's this, uh, in the Psalms, I want to say Psalms 20, there's 150 of them, I can't remember which one. Psalms 20 something or other talks about gold and it talks about purest gold. In Hebrew, the way it reads is gold, gold. That's the emphasis. They're saying it's so pure, so, uh, so valuable, it's, it's, uh, it's gold, gold, it's pure gold. When they talk about Joseph being thrown into the pit and they talk about a deep pit, in the Hebrew it's simply translated pit, pit. So, so Isaiah here's the, uh, describes the seraphim and to describe the holiness of God, which that word on its own is pretty heavy. The word holiness all by itself should be enough to describe God. Here in this moment, the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. He's perfectly pure. He's absolutely good. This idea of holiness is uh, the idea of being set apart. He's set apart from other people or things. Something is holy if it's set apart for uh, something special. Uh, the reason we have holidays, right, holy days, is because those days are set apart. They're set apart for something special. And when we have a holy day, we're saying that day has been set apart. So the idea of God being holy, holy, holy is this emphasis that he is perfect, that he is absolutely good, that he's absolutely set apart, that there's nothing and no one in creation that could stand with him. He's set apart from creation. He exists outside of all creation. He's set apart from humanity because he's not because uh, he is absolutely perfect and then we're not. Uh, we read on, verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So the seraphim spoke, the doorpost of God's throne room began to shake. These seraphim have one occupation. Their existence is simply to pour honor and glory and praise on the Lord who is enthroned in heaven. So here's Uzziah, and he has died. Everything's in question. There's cultural chaos. The throne room of heaven is open to Isaiah for him to see. He sees the seraphim. The room is shaking. Holy, holy, holy is proclaimed, and the holiness of God is overwhelming. And now Isaiah speaks in verse 5. And he says this, woe is me, for I am lost, for 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah saw the angels in all of their humility and obedience, praising God, he realized just how far apart God's holiness was compared to his own standard of living. You see, when we see God for who he is, it will reveal to us our true selves. When we meet God, there will be um, an opportunity to see him face to face. I was talking to someone about this last week, and we were talking about the questions we might have for God when we meet him. And you might have your questions for him. Uh, I'm just guessing, but chances are we won't get to our questions. (laughs) Because we'll look at ourselves, and we'll look at him, and we'll be like Isaiah, and we'll say, woe is me. I am ruined. The King James says, I'm undone. I'm falling apart. I'm devastated. I'm destroyed. Now, the experience of the throne room of God did not immediately make Isaiah feel good. In fact, the more clearly he saw the Lord, the more clearly he saw his own true self. In that moment, Isaiah saw his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. And it's not to question our value or our worth. It is to say that our value or worth is nothing apart from the love of a gracious God. Isaiah was a righteous, godly man by all outward appearances. He was a man who was a prophet of God. He was called upon to be the voice crying in the wilderness for his generation, for this time. And yet his righteousness, his godliness, however that might appear on the outward, he felt undone in comparison to the holiness of God. It's like when you look at a diamond. Um, I love telling the story of Libby and I getting engaged. Um, It involves a FedEx truck, a speeding ticket, and eating like three hamburgers in one setting. I'm going to save the whole story for another day. That's just a little teaser, right? Months earlier before, when we knew we were getting engaged, we would look for a ring, and we went looking, and we went to a few places, and uh, we met Richard Ski over at, in, in Eugene, and he showed us some diamonds. And, and what's interesting about diamonds is when you lay them against a perfectly black, black background, and you have an expert, and you have the right light, you can see every flaw and every imperfection. Flaws that were once invisible before, with the right light, with the right person guiding you through that, all of a sudden become abundantly clear. Now here's the thing, Isaiah's life might have been brilliant as a diamond on the outside, and yet even so, when his life lay against the bare background of God's perfection, of his holiness, he recognized, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, there's nothing in my life that compares to your holiness. The New Testament says it this way, for all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. The translation there in Greek simply means this. We've missed the mark of God's holiness. If we were in a competition of holiness and we had an archer's bow and we shot at a target with our own standard of holiness, we would miss the target completely of God's holiness. That's what Isaiah is feeling here. We read on in the narrative, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What we read here must be heaven's version of the altar of incense that was set before the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The throne is for God, and that's where he rules and reigns. And this altar, this is for us. This is where we find cleansing and purging from sin. Isaiah had cried out, woe is me. I can't compare. I'm undone. Um, I I don't deserve to be in this this place. In fact, um, being in the very presence of God in the Old Testament um, usually meant that you were going to (laughs) die. There's so many instances in the Old Testament where people were cautioned against entering the very presence of God in the tabernacle. Why? Because if you weren't worthy to enter or if you weren't appointed to enter in the very presence of God, you would be struck down. There was no place for a human to enter in the presence of God. So here's Isaiah chapter 6, and we're reading this narrative, and all of a sudden the throne room of heaven is opened up to Isaiah as a reminder that no matter the cultural chaos, no matter the uncertainty we might be facing, no matter how bad the politics might look, there is still a throne room in heaven, and it might feel like things are out of control, and yet in that moment we must remind ourselves God is still sitting on his throne. And if we don't remind ourselves with that, we will let the cultural chaos, the the external uh, environment control our inward disposition. And yet if we remind ourselves that God is in control, it doesn't make anything disappear, but now we have a different perspective as we walk through this life. I vote in every single election. But you know what my heart is not tied to? The outcomes of those elections. It's just not. I decided a long time ago that that was just not going to be good on my heart. So we must be good citizens. We must be part of a community. We must be good church members. We must fulfill all of our obligations that we have in a society. But at the end of the day, we must rest here that there is a throne room of heaven and he is not occupied by a politician. It's not occupied by anyone else. It should not be occupied by me. It's occupied by the king of kings. And when we represent or when we realize that God's holiness is on the throne room of God, we should have a similar, similar response. We should be saying, woe, woe is me. Here he is in the presence of God. And all of a sudden, one of the coals, uh, we're not going to get into all the symbolism here that we just read about the, the coals coming from the altar in the angel's tongs and coming onto his lips. But recognize this, our sin was placed upon him and he was burned with the fire of God's judgment on the cross. 
And yet because he was holy and righteous himself, the fire of God's judgment did not harm him. It only cleansed us from the sin. And Isaiah here has met with the Lord. He's been in the holy of holies. He's seen the throne room of God and he has been convicted of his sin. And now he's being cleansed from his gift, from his guilt. We read on. Well, actually, before we read on, when we see God in ourselves accurately, it is then our mission can be embraced. Look at verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here I am, send me. Now here's the thing, if later today perhaps you can read the rest of Isaiah chapter 6, God kind of clarifies what he's asking for. He says, by the way, Isaiah, I need you to know you're going to go to a people that will never, never listen to anything you say. They're going to be hard-hearted. The na nation is, cult is culturally declining, so you're going to deal with a lot of sin, a lot of iniquity. I'm going to send you out into this, and there's doom coming. There is judgment coming. Eventually, the Syrians will show up. They will attack. Everyone be, will be lost. No one is going to listen to you. I'm calling you, Isaiah, to a career of preaching to a people who will never listen to anything you say, and it will feel hopeless. It will feel uh, pointless. You will be a voice crying, and you will spend more time in your life as a preacher crying than you will uh, rejoicing, this is what I'm calling you to do. Whom shall I send? And here's Isaiah, and he hears the prospect of what's coming, and he hears about the fact that this is literally the worst job description he's ever read for a preacher. Like, this is going to be a horrible, horrible few years of your life. And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. When we see God and ourselves accurately, it is then our mission can be embraced. God in his holiness asks for someone to go on his behalf. What will your response be? God was asking for a person because God wants to reach people. And these are not in your notes, but you might want to write this down. God reaches people by using people. God reaches people by using people. How strange is it that this God of majesty, of sovereignty and power asks for volunteers? He asks for volunteers. In his power and in his strength, he asks for volunteers. He could have easily uh, created in us or created robots to do his will. He could have commanded angels to carry out his will. He could have forced us, even against our own will, to comply. And yet God asks for willing, surrendered servants. God won't force you to serve, but he is asking you to volunteer. So here's Isaiah, and he says, here I am. Send me. He didn't hesitate. He wanted to be the answer to God's question. When we see uh, God and ourselves accurately, it is then our mission can be embraced. God in his holiness asked for someone to go on his behalf. And Isaiah, out of his own naivete, no. Out of his own uh, opinion of his resume before God, no. 
because he recognized God's holiness, simply responded, I'll do it. I will be that one. Here's the beautiful part of what we're reading. When God came down into the temple and, and he appeared, it was a classic sign of judgment, which makes sense. There's the seraphim and they're shouting about his holiness. The floor is shaking. Everything goes dark. There's smoke. All of these are reminiscent of when God showed up to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. All of these elements are like when God would show up in judgment against the people of Israel when they would be disobedient. And he would come and he would come to Moses or he would come to the prophets of old and he'd say, here I am, here's my judgment for your sin. And yet in this moment, Isaiah is not dead. He's not struck down. He was not. Why was Isaiah able to stand there in God's presence? Why wasn't he eliminated? Well, I believe centuries later, a similar thing happened when there was an earthquake and there was a darkness. Let's read from Matthew 27. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45, says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Verse 46 says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, man, that must be him calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge. He filled it with sour wine, and they put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, hey, let's wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those that were with him keeping watching over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I believe that part of the reason Isaiah was able to be there in the very presence of God is that centuries later, God would come down in judgment on Jesus in our place. This would be Jesus being the substitutionary sacrifice. He was the payment. And there's a detail found in verse 51 that as a result of Jesus taking the payment, Jesus being our substitute, as a result, the veil in the temple was ripped. And the detail there from, Matthew, or from Luke is that it was uh, ripped from the top to bottom. That veil would signify the very presence of God that used to be lethal for us to come into if we were not worthy. And yet in this moment, the veil is torn down because we now have fellowship with him. The very presence of God now we can embrace and we can fall into and we can love. And the very presence of God dwells in us. Now keep in mind, that's the very presence of God that Isaiah was standing in. And Isaiah's response was, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. My life is undone. 
and I stand in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And yet here is God, and he's holy, 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 and yet he chooses to dwell in us. Here's the thing. I truly believe that if we could um, embrace the holiness of God, then our mission can be embraced. What I mean by that is this. If we could embrace the holiness of God, it wouldn't be that big of a deal to be generous with our money. It wouldn't be that big of a deal for us to forgive someone. It wouldn't be that big of a deal for us to, uh, to love someone that's unlovable. All of the different ways that God encourages us to live out our Christian faith is a result of us embracing the holiness of God. Uh, how about this one? If we would embrace the holiness of God, singing out loud wouldn't be that big of a deal. It just wouldn't be. Because God's commanded us to sing. He's asked us to worship him. He's asked us to do so. And you say, well, just, why are you picking on those who don't sing? Well, um, consider it an act of humble worship that you get to lift your voice as self-conscious as you are about it to worship the maker of the universe. He's just asking to hear your voice. He's just asking you to worship him. He's just asking you to sing praises to him. He's just asking you to voice out what we all believe. Why? So we could worship him. Isaiah's response when he got to the, the, the presence of God was, man, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then a few verses later, God's like, so I got this assignment for you, Isaiah, and it sucks. You're going to have to be a preacher to a generation of people, and they're not going to listen to you very well. You're going to preach and proclaim my goodness. You're going to preach and proclaim how they need to repent. You're going to preach and proclaim how they need to come back to the things of God, and they won't listen to you. By the way, the country, it's going to be a mess. The politics are going to be in shambles. The Syrians are going to come and they're going to attack. Your country will be under attack. The politics won't make sense. The economy is going to crumble. And I need someone to preach the glory of God. Doesn't get a lot of hits on Monster.com. There's not a lot of people vying for that job. And Isaiah simply responds, well, you need me to do something? And you're asking for volunteers? You're asking for someone to just tell them, about, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, all of a sudden, when we embrace the holiness of God, um, giving generously, isn't that, isn't that big of a deal? You're saying, you're, you're saying the holiness of God 
in our lives will compel us to serve him. It'll compel us to love. It'll compel us. When you think about the holiness of God and you think about all of that dwelled in Jesus and then for a moment, there's Jesus on the cross and there's our Savior. We just read the verses and he's on the cross and everything that we know about God, everything we know about Jesus, his holiness, his perfection, uh, the Trinity being in one. He's on the cross and he speaks these words, God Jesus speaks these words, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why am I experiencing this when I have done nothing to earn this? And the answer is clear. While that might be the way Jesus prayed in Matthew, by the time we get to Hebrews and we get to read it, it says this, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You know what the joy that was set before him was? Just look in the mirror. It's you and I. The holiness of God was risked and, and taken upon Jesus. Uh, the sin of the world was put on Jesus. The joy that was set before him was that you and I could have a relationship with him. And then all of a sudden we hear from God and he says, you know what, you probably should go to church today. And we're like, I don't know, Lord. It's a good doubleheader on today. Bengals play at one o'clock. I want to get home in time to watch the game. I don't know, Lord. Uh, Christmas is coming. I think I just won't give this month. It's, you're fine with that, right? I mean, I'm buying presents for your birthday. Like, I don't know, I, I hear about these needs and I hear about these ways to serve, but I don't know, that church is filled with weirdos, man. I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to give up a Saturday to do that. I don't know if I want to give up a Wednesday to, I, I don't, yeah. You see how silly all that sounds in comparison to the holiness of God? All of a sudden reading your Bible shouldn't sound like that big of a deal. The creator of the universe is asking you to listen to his love letter to us. Sounds pretty awesome if you ask me. The creator of the universe asks us to pray, asks us to simply yield ourselves to him. What I'm asking you to consider for just a moment as we think about Christmas and as we think about Advent coming and the, the waiting of the Messiah is this, the holiness of God when we see God for who he is, when we see us for uh, who we are, it should clarify and give us motivation, encouragement to pursue our mission for God. I love what the centurion does. The centurion and those that were with him, they kept watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Boy, it's my prayer that we would have the courage and boldness like this centurion to proclaim our lives with the kind of boldness that he says, truly this was the son of God. May we recognize the holiness of God during this time and may our lives kind of shift because of the holiness of God. Let me pray for you this morning. Would you bow your heads? If you're at home, we'd encourage you to pray with us as well. Heavenly Father, as we think through what Isaiah witnessed, Lord, we, sh we shudder at what he got to see. The very holiness of God displayed for him.
Father, as we consider your holiness, I pray that our lives would reflect appropriate responses. I love that Isaiah simply responded, well, here I am, send me. Thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to be shaken to pieces so that you could have, that we could have unshakable confidence and face any crisis that's out there. Any fear that might be around the corner, we now have the courage and the boldness because of what your son did for us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as you have given us the opportunity to enter into the Holy of Holies, you said to come boldly before the throne of grace. I pray, Lord, that our lives will be transformed because of what we see in you. May the holiness of God move us this morning. Jan's going to play for just a moment, and with your heads bowed, this is your opportunity to simply reflect and to respond. Perhaps we have taken for granted the holiness of God. Feel like there's probably a place in all of our hearts where God is asking us to grow or to move or to, yeah, to grow, to be obedient to him. And for all of us, it's going to be different places because we're all in different places in our life. We're at different rates in our spiritual growth even. For some of you, you're watching online and God simply said, you need to gather with other believers. We pray that the holiness of God would compel you to begin that search for a community of people where you can worship and invest your lives in. And if you're watching online from the Douglas County area, we invite you to join us in person. For some of you, it's as simple as carving out some time this week to pray and to read the Bible. And maybe you don't even know where to start. And I pray that the holiness of God would just simply compel you to begin somewhere. If you need help on how to start with prayer or reading scripture, I hope you'd reach out to myself or Darren or someone you know and love and trust that can say, hey, help me, help me start how to pray. How do, how do I start praying? How do I start? Just ask that question. The holiness of God should compel us to do that much. For some of you, it's this idea of just giving and to give generously, not compelled by a law or a mathematical equation, but based on how God has blessed you, what does it look like to bless others? Well, the holiness of God should compel us to be generous because he's been so generous to us. Maybe there's a relationship where you need to extend forgiveness. Maybe there's a a family member, you need to reach out to simply say you love them. I can think of no better time of year than this time to become ministers of reconciliation, as Scripture says. The holiness of God should compel us to do that. 
that he would send his son to die for us so that as unholy as we are, we could all echo the words of Isaiah. We are men and women of unclean lips. We are undone. We have no business standing in the holiness of God. And yet God sent him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.